Hey, uh, I want to welcome all of you uh, here at the Harvard campus, live and in person, and everyone joining us online. Uh, hello, it's great to have you. If I could have everyone here grab a Bible, please, and turn to Acts chapter 8. That's where we're going to be camping out. You can take those message notes out as well. And while you're getting organized, I just want to reiterate what Kyle said about the Bible conference, just how wonderful of time that was last weekend, our speakers, all the sessions. Uh, and then, of course, on Sunday morning, as part of our Bible conference, we had Lakita. How many of you uh, enjoyed Lakita's message last weekend? So good, huh? Yeah, she's really so dynamic. A big part of who Christy and I are today is because of, of her, a wonderful woman of God. So thank you, everybody, who took part and generously served and gave for our weekend. It was really a, a life-impacting, tremendous time together. So uh, let's go ahead now and get into our study. You may recall, if you were with us the weekend before the conference, that we left Philip, who was Christianity's first known missionary. He's working and he's traveling on this road, the road to Gaza. Gaza, as we said, was a place, a very difficult place in the first century. Most uh, Israelites did not go to Gaza. And when I say the word Gaza, of course, this week especially, it invokes uh, some, some really just uh, some tragedy in our hearts. The Gaza Strip, of course, the location where uh, the, the Hamas militants launched their uh, terrorist attack into Israel. If you haven't heard, it was pretty horrific. Uh, I, the last count I've heard is over 600 people. Their lives have been taken, as well as people that were, uh, were kidnapped and brought back into uh, Gaza. The Hamas militants, of course, are a terrorist organization that hold not only um, their own people hostage every day, uh, but our, their whole purpose is to, uh, is to inflict uh, pain and damage and death upon Israel. And so our prayers go out for all those impacted. We're going to say a, a quick prayer at the end of the service uh, together. Uh, one thing I would like to have you pray for this week, uh, in addition to Israel and, and this uh, situation, is the, uh, the, there are some Palestinian Christians that are in the Gaza Strip, in the Golan Heights, and in the other occupied territories of, of, of Palestine. So we have a small contingent of Christians who've been there uh, for many, uh, many, many years now, hundreds, thousands of years, and, uh, and there's not many, and they get basically terrorized every day. So this is a persecuted church situation. So please pray for the persecuted church, the Palestinian brothers and sisters uh, who are located in this area. A lot to pray for here. Uh, could, could we all agree on that? Okay. Uh, so let's get back to this. Of course, uh, now into our text, uh, you, see, uh, you see Philip on the road to Gaza, and he encounters a man in a chariot, right? Uh, an Ethiopian government official who's rather wealthy. He can tell right away. And let's read now, starting in 29, verse 29 till the end, and we'll just go to the end of the chapter. It helps if you're on the right chapter. Here we go. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him, to the Ethiopian, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, and here's the quotation. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? 
And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they went both down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. What? What just happened? But Philip found himself at Azotus, which is another village, I don't know, 20, 30 miles from there. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So, uh, so just so much going on here as, as usual in our passage. And I'll just say this about the, the ending piece there. Uh, I'm not really sure what that looked like, but what I picture in my mind is it takes me to Star Trek, of course. Uh, and you've got, you've got Spock and you've got Kirk and you've got Chekhov being beamed around, you know, beam me up, Scotty. And I don't know if that's what it looked like, but it seems to be that the Holy Spirit, though, uh, is, is beaming Philip uh, away instantaneous. And, and I must admit, every time I have, to tr- I have to fly economy, I just pray that the Lord would, would beam me to the destination and, and so far, and with my luggage. And so far, he hasn't done that. So, uh, so we can still pray. But uh, that's pretty much all I have to say about that aspect. But let me just uh, now talk about the text. And I'll start by saying... Um, uh, uh, just a comment about movies that connect with me personally. There's a specific type of movie that I really like that I find myself drawn to, and the movies have, have two things about them. First is they have big battle scenes. And, and you know, if movies like, like Saving Private Ryan and Lord of the Rings, you know, you've got thousands of elk, uh, orcs, elk? Uh, Ron, that's not elk season. Orcs and elves, orcs and elves, elks. Uh, you've got thousands of these armies attacking each other. And, and then in, you know, in the battle scenes in the military movies, you know, you've got huge troop movements in planes and tanks and boats. And the scenes are overwhelming, right? They just kind of take your breath away, the scope and the size of what's happening. But then invariably, the second part that really connects with me is the camera will pan down into like one foxhole and you'll just meet one person, one soldier, and a few of his friends. And you kind of get drawn into the story. It's like the story within the story. And, that, and it was like Lord of the Rings, Sam and Frodo, these two little hobbits who are, who are kind of caught up in these huge world events and, and their little lives and yet the impact they make. And as you learn their stories, you kind of get drawn in. And, and pretty soon you find yourself kind of relating because it's personalized and humanized. And this This type of structure is exactly how Luke puts together the book of Acts. He gives us this big picture of Christianity's expansion, right? Thousands of people at one time coming to Christ, a whole whole city, a whole region, right? Uh, Turning to Jesus, and it's big, and it's grand, and it kind of takes your breath away. But then what Luke does is he pans the camera down, so to speak, and we get to know one person, and we learn about their story and how they came to know Jesus. And we, we put ourselves now into the story. We relate to this individual, and it personalizes and humanizes this, this massive movement called Christianity. And it's a beautiful structure. And Acts, Acts is teaching us that God loves the world. The world is big. The world has a lot of jacked up problems, right? And there's just big things that we all get caught up, and it kind of takes our breath away, and we don't know what to do, and yet God loves the world. And he's, he's, the world is hurting, and he's provided the gospel for a solution. But then the, the, the other thing is that he, he knows and cares about me and you 
and your life and your family and your particulars. And, and that's there too. And it's a beautiful thing. And today is one of those times where we get to see how the one person receives and trusts the gospel. And it's a personal story. It has three parts. We meet the man and then the gospel is communicated. And then there's a response. All right. So let's go to your notes now and let's go through these. Let's meet the man. The individual is quite extraordinary. We get a number of details about the Ethiopian eunuch. First, we learn that he's African. This is his lineage. He has black skin. He does not look like the Israelites. He does not look like the people around him. He's traveled from North Africa around 1,100 miles over dangerous terrain to be there. He's Christianity's first African convert that we know about. We also know he's a powerful individual. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's the finance minister for the Kush kingdom, the Kush kingdom, which is uh, Ethiopia. He has a staff of people. He's powerful. He's got a powerful position. He's got an entourage. When he says something, man, people, people do it. He's, a, he's the man. He's in charge. And, and the third thing about him is we know because of this, he's very wealthy. His position would have generated a considerable amount of personal wealth, we know his chariot is, we've, we've talked about, it's kind of the Hummer of chariots. He's, you know, he's riding in the back. Uh, he's not driving it. He has a, he has a staff. And, and we also know he's on religious pilgrimage. He went to Jerusalem to worship, he says, which meant that he could travel. He's got some means to make this happen. People didn't travel back then like, like of course, today. Uh, another indicator that he was wealthy is that he owned his own Bible scroll, and this is a very spectacular detail. Uh, most people, almost no one owned their own Bible back then, all right? Uh, he, uh, Hebrew Bibles, Jews didn't. It was extremely rare for an individual to have their own copy. Maybe if you were a high-level rabbi, you may have one or two scrolls. You may have some of the Bible. Uh, these, were, these were expensive to produce. They were very painstaking. I mean, they did not have... Christian bookstores back then. They didn't have bookstores at all. Duh, you guys know that, but it's worth pointing out. So, it's, so, so what, what happens is Jewish families would pool their money together and they would all buy one copy of the Hebrew scriptures and then they would chain that to a stone table in their synagogue so that nobody would accidentally borrow the, the Bible and it, would, and it would leave and then nobody ever find it again. Much like today, I don't ever loan out any of my books. When I, when I loan out a book, it's just a gift because I ain't never seeing that again. That's how Christians operate. Okay, so um, <laughs> our guy's got one though, right? He's, he's loaded I mean, he's, he's figured out how to get a scroll. That's pretty cool. And he's multilingual. He's reading it out loud. Like, like Philip, Philip is running alongside the chariot, right? He's running alongside, it's going, and he's like, hey, man, I, I, I hear that you're reading. Do you know what you're reading? So he's, he's bilingual, he's multilingual. Uh, Hebrew is not his native language, and that means that he was literate and educated, which in a time in the first century, almost no one could read there was less than 10% literacy. This is an estimate. That's in the Roman Empire in the first century. And our guy is from a much less literate area uh, because he's from North Africa. So this is very rare. He's been educated. And he's reading while he's driving along, which means he's very disciplined. He's not wasting any time. And it also means that he doesn't get car sick while he reads, which I cannot relate. <laughs> What's he reading? 
He's reading the Old Testament. So this gives us a hint as what his heart is, how, his heart. He, he, this guy is a spiritual explorer. He's, he's hungry and thirsty for answers, right? He's in a place of seeking significance and purpose. He's in spiritual search mode, which, by the way, is oftentimes what you see when people have risen to the top and they've got success, they've got money, they've got the cars, they've got the flat screens, they've got all this stuff, the vacations, oftentimes that doesn't satisfy because the soul was never meant to be filled by stuff. And so people who are successful often go into search mode. They climb to the top, it's not doing it. The soul is still unsettled. The soul is still restless. There's a Why am I not happy? I've got it all. Why can't I find happiness, true happiness? And so we think at some point, uh, the the Ethiopian eunuch, he began to to ask these questions. He started reading his Bible. Perhaps he was was having questions that his religions around him could not answer. He's a seeker. He's hungry. So significant was his his hunger that he... He, he, he travels, he travels, he maybe perhaps hears about, this is a place, Jerusalem, where there's a temple, and maybe someone can answer my questions, maybe I'll find God there, maybe I'll find the true God there, and so he makes the journey. He's heard maybe he could find the Lord in Jerusalem, but the next uh, fill-in, when he gets there, he's rejection, he's rejected, he's experiencing severe rejection. Imagine going 1,000 miles, 1,100 miles, you're risking your life, and he's pulling into Jerusalem and he's excited. Okay, okay, maybe a priest, I can find a priest. Maybe we can figure this thing out. Maybe I can get my, my questions answered finally. And he's going into the temple court area and he's excited. Maybe I can find the answers only to be told, hey man, Hey, man, you got to leave. You can't get in here. People like you can't be here. And he gets exited off the premises. This wasn't racial discrimination, friends. He was denied entrance because he's a eunuch. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, verse 23:1, we're told that those who have mutated, mutilated genitalia, mutilated either by choice or by accident, are considered ritualistically impure and thus are not allowed to enter into the temple courts to worship. Furthermore, the priests were not allowed to go near individuals of this uh, situation, nor could they touch them because then they would become ritualistically impure. And so the commentators tell us that perhaps as he attempted to gain entrance into the temple area, the temple police Uh, which were roaming around, would have stopped him and questioned him, and then they were charged with enforcing these restrictions. And certainly they would have learned about his situation and then asked him to leave, which is most likely what happened to our man. And can you talk about rejection now? Rejection. Deep disappointment. Castration, by the way, was not a word you hear in church very often. Uh, Castration was the price that the Ethiopian man had to pay for his position. This This is the history now. We're kind of filling in blanks from the history. 
It's very well known that in ancient cultures of this time, men who had risen through the ranks of leadership in court life, in order to be around female royals, the only way the court, the, the, the system set, the only way they could be trusted is if they were sexually altered. And that's how they knew that there would be no attempt at, uh, at advancement in that way. And we also know that his, his boss was the queen, the queen regent of Cush. Her name is Candace Amonatare. And so in order for him to be, to be trusted to be around the queen, we think he chose a life of sexual altering in order to achieve his status. So our man had paid a tremendously large cost to reach the heights of wealth and power, and he had risen to the top. And part of what got him there was now the very thing that was denying him entrance into the one place spiritually he desired to go, a place where he could find answers and satisfaction for his spiritual longing. And so there was rejection then and frustration and humiliation. Can you relate to any part of this now? Issues of being rejected. Who, who hasn't been rejected and felt that, that humiliation and that, that embarrassment? Issues of trying your hardest but failing and falling short. Issues of never being satisfied with the questions in your heart, of having that restlessness, right? So remember, Luke is drawing us in, you and me, into the story, and we can see ourselves at least partly in this man and how he finds Christ. And lastly, your last, your last feeling is, is he was a humble person. There is a, a unique humility here that is, that is remarkable. Despite his setbacks, we see him now on the road reading still his Isaiah scroll. He's still searching. He's still spiritually hungry. He's still wanting to know. He's undaunted. And so he's picking up his Bible and he's reading it. And like many of us who pick up our Bibles, he didn't know what it was saying. Now can you relate to the guy? <laughs> Amen. And it just so happens, it just so happens at precisely the moment where he is experiencing questions, perhaps thinking, boy, I wish there was somebody here that could answer some of the basic structure and understanding of this passage I'm reading. What do we see? Philip come, comes running alongside, random guy out of nowhere. Hey, hey, man, I, I see you're reading Isaiah. Uh, do you know what you're reading? And I can just see the guy just doing a double take and being like, no, I, I, I ain't got no clue. If only there was someone to answer my questions. And he invites Philip into the chariot. And then he asks, he asks, a great question. Who, who is this person? Who is this person that Isaiah is talking about? I'll, I'll show you the passage. It's from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away. Do you know, do you know, mister, do you know, what this is referring, who this is referring to, what this is talking about. And Philip says, yes, I know exactly who Isaiah is speaking about here. 
Let me tell you, it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. There's no greater place. If you were going to open up your Old Testament and go to a place that speaks about who Jesus is, there's probably no better place than precisely Isaiah 53. This is the prophet Isaiah's prophetic material concerning the suffering servant, the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, including the Messiah's rejection, the Messiah's humiliation in the face of his accusers, the Messiah's death among evil men, his burial in a wealthy man's grave, the Messiah's substitutionary aspect of his suffering, and then ultimately the Messiah's resurrection. It's the gospel laid out hundreds of years in prophetic form before Jesus was ever born. And it's right here, coincidentally, that the man, the the Ethiopian, is reading this passage. It is stirring his questions and his hunger. And there is someone there. A Christian is there. Not a super Christian, not an apostle, a regular guy, and he's there to explain the text. Luke doesn't say exactly what Philip said to the Ethiopian, but we know that he shares the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The commentators tell us that that probably Philip not only unpacked verses 7 and 8 here in, in Isaiah 53, but probably used the rest of the chapter and And the rest of the chapter and and a little bit before and after, which these passages speak about specifically the substitutionary aspect of Jesus and his death and resurrection. The substitutionary part of the gospel is very central to our belief system. In fact, it's really hard to talk about the gospel in general with its different motifs without mentioning that Christ is our substitute, is our substitute. It certainly is biblical. And what does that mean? This means that God came and put himself on the cross in Jesus Christ. And it means that the payment that was inflicted upon Christ, his broken body, his shed blood, was meant for us, but God swapped it out. God swaps it out. He substitutes it out so that we, you and me, we don't have to incur such a penalty. That, that the Lord Jesus was made unclean so that you and I could be clean. That the Lord Jesus was rejected in order that you and I might be accepted in the sight of God. That the Lord Jesus was humiliated on the cross so that you and I may be dignified in the eyes of God. Do you see that you and I, you and I, we have sinned greatly. We're born sinners. And we're, and we're also not just born and victims of it, but we're also participants of sin. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a sinner, bro. You're a sinner, sis. You know. You know it is. You know it's true. I mean, we could start naming them, but just talk about our pride, our arrogance, our low-grade or high-grade narcissism, wherever you fall on the scale. 
We talk about our selfishness and our lust and our materialism and our never being happy and we always blame the other person and we're never the victim and we're never the ones at fault and on and on and on it goes. Turn to your spouse and say amen. And yet then there's Jesus who lived a perfect life who deserved no punishment. He never sinned, not even one time on this planet. And he lived a perfect life. He thought a perfect thought life. He always responded in kindness and sin and, exact, and, and without sin and without, without, any, uh, uh, without any error in his ways. And so if there's anybody that ever lived that didn't deserve a punishment of any kind, it's him. And yet God said, okay, here's how it's going to work. We're going to swap this out. So that justice is met and mercy is given. And so this is the gospel message, friends, that Jesus is our substitute. He's our substitute. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is my substitute. And when you realize what Jesus has done for you and for me and that you and me were loved, he did this out of love. He did this out of motivation because he cares for you. He knows you and he loves you. He did this out of his desire for you to be accepted into his family. When you realize what he's done and that you receive this reality and that you believe in this and that you accept this truth and you believe in Jesus and what, it's, what he's done, it changes everything. It literally changes everything. It, it, you know what happens is, the Bible says, what it happens is it, 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 you become converted. You're converted. Well, you're one of those churches that believes in conversion? Yes, we are. What does conversion mean? Conversion is when you believe in this work of Christ and you receive it, you accept it. His, his Holy Spirit, the Christ Spirit, comes to reside in your heart, in your soul. And remember all those things that you were filling it in, sex and you know, entertainment and... Netflix, I mean, all these things, <laughs> stupid things, good try things, significance at work, all these things, all of that, and it's just a black hole. It just like goes in your heart and just escapes, right? And it's still there. The whole, that hole gets filled. It's perfectly satisfied now in Jesus Christ. And so the restlessness, the restlessness is no longer there because why? It's filled. It's fulfilled in Jesus and you're now satisfied with all those longings of significance and purpose are now, are, are now gone because of the change in your heart. This is salvation. Conversion is salvation. And this is what happens when a person says yes to Jesus. And so we see an instance of this, right? The Ethiopian. He says yes to Jesus. And, and Philip is walking him through. Now, we don't have the conversation. I said, oh, I wish we did. We'll get it in heaven, right? We'll rerun the tapes. We'll get to see it. It'll be cool. And we'll meet, the, we'll meet the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, and we'll meet Philip, and maybe we'll have coffee or tea or however it works up there, uh, and we'll get to hear it firsthand, and it'll be really fun. But we know that Philip taught the gospel, and we also think that Philip must have taught on water baptism, not just the act of salvation, but next steps. What do you do? How do you live? How do you follow Jesus? So water baptism is a topic. Because here's why. The Ethiopian asks another question. See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? 
So Philip must have talked about water baptism because he sees water. And he's like, hey, there's a, there's a puddle, there's a, a lake or whatever, a pond. A, uh, what do you call that thing in the desert? The, uh, oasis, thank you. He's asking a great question, but I think there's a question underneath this question. I think what he's really asking is, does me being a eunuch disqualify me from being in the water and being a follower of Jesus? Can someone like me be accepted? Remember, he was just denied entry into the temple because of his situation. He was filtered out. And I think right here he's asking, does it work the same way with Jesus? What's the answer? It doesn't work the same way as the temple, right? Because no matter what you've done in your past, no matter what decisions that you've made, or no matter what was done to you to make you the way you are, all that is required in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is faith in his name. That's it. There ain't nothing else. And so if you've made a decision about your life and you're like, wow, I wish I wish I hadn't made that decision. I don't think I'm getting in. I don't think I can ever be accepted by Christ. Guess what? That's not how it works. We're not talking about religion. We're not talking about the temple system and rules and regulation and following a certain mold and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, like a prescribed set of morals and ethics. And that's what qualifies you. All that qualifies you is faith in his name. It's not what you've done. It's what he's done. And so the Ethiopian learns this right here. It's, it's oh, I can go. I can get in the water. I can, I'm not, I'm not going to be tossed out. Let's go, man. Let's go right now. And so Philip goes in the water with him and baptizes him. And I love this. I just love this. Man, I'm just like my imagination. I'm putting my, working my way through this visually in my mind. I think Luke is wanting us. Now, when you baptize someone, uh, have you seen anybody ever be baptized? Or maybe you've been baptized. Nobody baptizes themselves. That's weird. It's not meant, you don't see that in the Bible. So usually you get baptized by, if you're taking that step with Jesus, who baptizes? Usually it's a pastor or someone that led you to Christ or you know, your parents who are believers. And it's just such a great moment. Now we do baptisms here at our church probably three, four times a year. It's pretty cool. A lot of them happen in a farm tank that we cut in half. I mean, we're a classy bunch here. I mean, we just are super classy. And it's one of them white. We rinsed it out. Don't worry. We rinsed it out. And we fill that thing with water and we get in. But then there's one time a year where we go to the river and it's in the summertime, not in the winter, because we're really smart people. Uh, <laughs> and you go into the water. And last, last August or a couple months ago, we had a big one. 50 people got baptized. It was really fun. It was awesome. And so what happens is person comes into the water and, you know, a person like me will be there. And I, it's one of my favorite things because there's, there's, there's human contact involved. And what I do is I usually put my arm around the shoulder of the person up high on the shoulder. And remember how the priest couldn't touch the anybody, you know, like this, that's not how it is. And you, 
you do this and and then when it's time, you know, we 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 go we go backwards. There's a little bit of trust involved, which again is part of it. And then if the person's a real rascal, I hold them down there just a couple seconds longer. Just you know, I'm teasing. Don't do that. I'm joking. Did everybody know I'm joking? <clears throat> and immediately you come up. And then a lot of times there's hugs and stuff. It was so hard during COVID, you know, you weren't supposed to tell, yeah, you can't do any of that. And, you know, I think I got COVID like three times. It was worth it. (laughs) So that happened, right? There's this beautiful picture of Philip. And they come up out of the water. And again, we don't know, but the spirit beams them out of there. And then we meet Philip one more time decades later in the book of Acts. I think it's in Acts 26, which probably we'll get there decades later the way I'm preaching how fast, but we'll get there eventually. So the Ethiopian goes home. He's filled with Christ. And we don't really know what happened to him, but here's what we do have. We do have some stuff. A fourth century Christian historian named Eusebius writes about the Ethiopian eunuch. So this would be a couple hundred years later. He tells us that he went on to plant the first church in Africa. And this church flourished. This church grew and grew and grew. And while the history is a little unclear, we know that up until the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, so the late 1800s, early 20th century, around 80 to 90% of all the Christians in the continent of Africa were located in Ethiopia and Sudan. And from from this, for, for 1,900 years, this church in this area grew and grew and grew. Our oldest Bibles come from this. Some of our oldest theology, our theological writings come from this church, the Coptic church. And then from 1900, early 1900s, a wave of evangelism has overtaken the continent of Africa and three to 400 million people have come to Jesus from top to bottom since then. And it started there. It started there. And it's still happening, by the way. There are more Christians in Africa, way more than there is in North America. One of the nations that I've been to, Ghana, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, has a a much, much higher percentage of legitimate church attendance than even the Bible Belt. Eat your heart out, Nashville. I don't know why I said that. So what, what part of the story are you relating to? This is a very personal story. Are you connecting with this now? I hope that you get a chance to talk about this more in your community groups because the scripture is absolutely a beautiful thing to study. Okay, so that's the sermon, but I have like a little, uh, I've gone a little over time and I'm gonna take, can I take four more minutes and do just one little thing with you? Okay, one person said yes, so we're good. (laughs) Some of you may have spotted as we read that there could be potentially on the surface an error in the 
versification numbers in our text. So look back down at verse 36. Okay, this is in, in what we read. All right, so if you follow verse 36 along and then you come to the end of it, what's the next number that you see? 38. So 36 to 38. Hey, what happened? What happened to verse 37, man? What's going on here? That's the question we want to answer. So it's a missing verse. Let's, let's air quote that. And this isn't the first time this has happened, though, because we see this twice more, particularly in Matthew 18, 11 and John 5, 4. Where are these missing passages? And you're like, I didn't know this even existed, and now I have a real issue. Billy, thank you very much. <laughs> so to find the text of these missing verses, we need to go to a different English translation. And in our case, we need to go to the New King James Version, which is a great version of the Bible. And it will show us the text of verse 37. I'll put it on the screen for you. So this is verse 36. Same, verse 37. And then Philip said, if you believe, so the eunuch says, hey, what prevents me from being bought or baptized? And then verse 37, if you believe with all of your heart, you may, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So there's the verse 37. And then it goes to verse 38, same thing that we read in our version. This is the King James Version, the New King James Version, and we read the ESV, the English ver Standard Version. So we can just read, everybody relax. It's not some conspiracy. There's nobody like pulling verses out of the Bible and tricking anybody, okay? So that's not what's happening. What's happening is this. This, this is an instance of manuscript variations coming to play in the ESV, the NIV, the, the version that we use. So what are manuscripts? Manuscripts are ancient documents that contain copies of the original biblical text. And they're what we base all of our English translations on. And so there's literally thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the Bible dating from early in the second century all the way through manuscripts that we rely on uh, into the medieval period. And so there are, some of these are complete manuscripts. Some of them are partial. And sometimes when we compare these manuscripts, there are slight variations in the copies. And in the case of verse 37, the New King James Translation Committee uses a slightly different set of manuscripts that is newer for their translation than the ESV and the NIV. They use older manuscripts, and the older manuscripts do not have a couple of these sentences in them, thus the differences. Now, there is a field of study called textual criticism which is the field of study that is devoted to understanding variance in biblical manuscripts. And so, guys, we know about these. Nobody's freaked out about these. We study them, we trace them, and we understand them, and we seek to see how these tiny variations in the manuscripts pop up. In the case of our additional verse, what we think happened is in around the manuscript evidence around the 700s, the copyists were copying, making copies of, of, of the text, and sometimes the copyists would write little notes, like little thoughts they had, little commentary in the margin of the manuscripts. And then what we think happened is a later copyist accidentally inserted one of those sentences into the flow of the text, and that's how we got what we got. Now, 
This doesn't happen very often. In fact, uh, if you take all of these variations, it only impacts a very tiny percentage of the entire biblical material. And none of those variations affects any meaningful doctrine whatsoever. It's minor. It doesn't affect any of our core theology, our core doctrines, even our core passages that we land on and we really, like that is, that is very, very solid, all to say that we have full confidence in our Bible. It's reliable and accurate to the original autographs, the original, original manuscripts from which it came. But this is a thing, and I want you to know about it. Because first of all, it's in your Bible, and it saves me an email when you ask me, where did verse 37 go, bub? And now you know. Okay, let me just do a little check, a status check. Everybody good? Is there any fog in the room? No, we're good. Okay, now you know a little bit of a Bible hack. Lots to see here. So what we're going to do is we're going to close out our message time this morning uh, with, a, uh, with a time of communion, the bread and the cup. And so I'm going to bring up Steve Jones, which, Steve, don't tell the other elders. He's one of our elders, but you're my favorite elder. So. Right. <laughs>